Thank you so much for moving forward. I get to look at you, see the Vipassana facelift. And uh, as I tried to sit for the 30 minutes before the talk, and I was, uh, I was keyed up. I was excited. And I realized it's because I, I just love uh, sharing the teachings. I love truth. I love exploring the, the truth. And I think that's what we all share as, as people who lead retreats, this love of truth, which to me is, is uh, just as juicy as romantic love or love of nature. The love of truth is, a, is one of the ways that, that our hearts open. And even though we put the brakes on, there's usually something about seeing clearly, something about the truth that um, gladdens our heart, that makes us happy. So when I realize that just overflows uh, when I'm the about-to moment of giving a talk, and so it just can sometimes just kind of spill out. Uh, so thanks for giving me the opportunity. And uh, I thought I would start tonight by, by sharing something that uh, I've been feeling today, uh, meeting with you in the groups, and it's often true on retreats that after many days, uh, everyone seems to me, you seem to, you start to look um, beautiful, really beautiful. And so I thought I'd share the uh, first few lines of a poem from Hafez. It's called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. I know that the voice of depression still calls to you. I know those habits that can ruin your life still send their invitations. But you are with the friend now. And I'll just say, just present awareness, just your natural state, your nature. You're with the friend now and you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the sacred hands and glance of your beloved and my dear from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. There's there's a reason why we look so much stronger. You've been with the friend, your refuge, that in you which makes everything that can be known more workable. When, that, when you're not with the friend, we, we tend to wander a long time confused, just lost. But he goes on to say, in describing how we get lost, he says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins. that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) So tonight I would like to 
speak a little bit about the counterfeit coins in the form of our mistaken views about ourselves. Everything we have shared on the retreat has been trying to point to the immediate reality, the immediate experience of yourself. Now, as I sit here and I take in, of course, I may have all kinds of projections going on, but I have a feeling if we just meet in a simple, aware presence, not so much referring to our memory, that you will recognize in yourself, you will feel in yourself a sense of enough, sufficiency, okay, even good, maybe even happy. Just being here for a moment free of the past and free of the future. Ideas, those which are just ideas. And as we've been here together, you've been immersing yourself more in this sense of simple presence. And I will guarantee that what you experience here in the immediate present, which I call reality, it's not really present, there's no present because then you need a past and a future, and those don't exist. So the present doesn't really exist either. It's just another idea. But we can call it reality. It's kind of life. Right where it's touching you right now. You've eased yourself into it. Gotten used to it again. And I'll guarantee that what your immediate and direct experience is right here is a far cry, is quite different than the story about yourself that often plays through your mind, the view of yourself that um, is a wonderful story sometimes, painful story other times, a story that has been, that is born of all the circumstances of your life, all your life situations, all your memories, hopes, dreams, all those, everything that has come together to form uh, you, But nevertheless, that story, that view about yourself is just a story. In some fundamental way, in some fundamental way, that story describes someone who we cannot find on present evidence. It describes a virtual you, the imaginary you. Very useful, very wonderful, very much, uh, as I said, formed by, by our, um, by our um, family of origin, our race, our gender, our sexual orientation. Uh, all has formed this kind of view we call, the Buddha called Sakaya Ditti, self-view. And it's, it is a, uh, a wonderful thing to get to know 
what our self-view is and how it came to be. It's also wonderful to see how you came to be in this moment, to reflect on that. Aaron referred last night to all the myriad causes and conditions that we are here dependent on causes and conditions. That you are, how you came to be here, it depended on so many things. In fact, it depended on everything that has ever happened, happening the way it did. Just that if one smile or one frown or one blade of grass may have bent in a different way, we wouldn't be here in this configuration. It's kind of awesome. Strange. So there's something, even if we're reflecting on it, something uh, mysterious and wonderful and miraculous about our being here. But the fact that we're here is a, uh, it couldn't just happen in a vacuum. It just couldn't happen by itself. In other words, it depended on all, we always, we think of it as it depended on the moment you were born. You came out of your parents' womb, but clearly it didn't start then. And you could say it depended on your parents getting together, having a wild night or a tender night. But then you'd have to think about how they were brought together. And then you have to include their parents and their grandparents. And then you have to include everything that was going on at that time, religion, culture, everything. Then you have to consider everything. The weather. You have to consider the elements of earth, air, fire, water. Everything that came together for us to be here. I like the idea that we're meant to be here. One reason is One way we know that is because we're here. (laughs) Another is that this is what life created. This is such a, you, each of us, is such an example of the creative nature, the empty nature of things, how everything is emerging out of dependent causes. And this is the... First, this is one of the ways that we can realize our, uh, what we call our selflessness, where we can actually see through the self-illusion, the illusion somehow that gets created in our mind that we exist independently apart from all of those causes, exist independently apart from each other. And the whole of our, what we've taught here, the whole of our practice is moving from that narrow, distorted view of our, um, of our individuality, our self existing independently, moving from that narrow vortex often of preoccupation with our personal stories, our situations, our, our thoughts, to a wider sensitivity and appreciation for our place in the family of things and our place in uh, our wider sense of our, uh, our caring and our, our heart, the wider place of wisdom, sometimes the wider gravitational field of the Dharma sometimes thought of.
So here we are, you, each of us, more ourselves than when we got here. More just settled in our own unique creative expression of life. Just being here. Being ourselves. Not the idea of ourselves. But just that direct experience. What can you actually say about yourself from this immediate and direct experience? Who and what are you on present evidence? What would you say? Anybody willing to say? Aware. Aware. Childlike. Childlike. What else? Brave. Brave. Just right here. So how about when we're here and knowing that we were formed by all these circumstances, all these conditions, non-personal. I always think of this passage from a teacher in Nagarjuna who said, you are not the same, nor are you different from the conditions on which you depend. You're neither severed from those conditions, nor are for you, nor are you forever fused with them? It's kind of ambiguous who we are. But he says, this is the deathless teaching for Buddhas who care for the world. It's a reminder that we are beginningless. We are deathless. There's no place to find a beginning. And naturally, as part of the, the unfolding of life, there's really no end. That's very different than the story that plays through our mind. It's all about the one, the imagined one, is the one who, who was born on a such and such date. That's our conventional view. So the one in our story has come from the past, is moving through the present. I talked about this a little bit the first night. Moving through the present on our way to the future. Now, that's a story. And the one in the story is in some way very much uh, the whole sense of identity, this Sakaya Ditti, this identity view, is, um, is, is built around, I think the strongest identification is with this body. And so it's a great place to study ourselves, is the body. Because that's our deepest sense of identity. The great Zen Master Dogen, who I think Aaron quoted last night, was it last night? Or somebody quoted Dogen. He said, to study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. So even if we just sensing a little more our interconnectedness with everything that has come before, we forget for a moment that self that we think exists independently apart from everything. We, are, we become awakened by all things. We, are, we, be, we recognize that intimacy with all the conditions that have 
conditions that have come together for us to be here. But we study the self. We study the self-view, the story that plays through our mind. And the place where we start our study of, of the self-view is we start with the body. And from when we come on a retreat, when we enter our practice, our body seems very much who we are. I'm my body. Does that seem like a reasonable conclusion? To come, that's more of our conventional view. And most of our thoughts have a picture of us, a little, a little picture. And so one of the examples of that is that we, if we were to describe our conversation right now, I'm looking at you, you're looking at me, we, you would describe us as face-to-face, right? But we don't actually experience face-to-face. We experience ourselves being, as somebody said, aware. And then a face fills up our awareness. So in order to be face-to-face, we have to create a little picture of a face looking at another face. Does that make any sense? So the picture in our mind is is of this thing called a body. And when we first feel our body, it feels like a thing. And it feels like a thing that's independent from all the other bodies. And it is in a conventional way. Our bodies are conventionally separate. But then as we study the self, as it's represented in our body, we call it ourselves, we start to discover a, we start to discover an underlying world where it's not quite as solid as it seemed. And as the proximity of our observation gets a little bit closer, we put our, our bodies under the microscope of our minds, we stop being able to experience a thing called body. We start discovering that this body is a field of changing, rapidly changing, never the same, never solid sensations. There is the experience of solidity but that also is a changing condition. Earth, air, fire, water. And through our own attention, we, because of our perception is changing, because we're coming a little closer, we're starting to hit up against the, the, um, the reality that our body is not as secure as we thought it was. We know generally that it ages, it gets sick, and it dies. But then we come closer and we realize that it, it is so, it's moving so rapidly and is so much out of control that it starts to shake our identity. And we get shaken by diagnoses, we get shaken by illness, we get... Because, and this is... This is partly because of our very strong identification with our body. So any identity view that is connected to our body makes us very, very insecure. It makes us feel really uneasy, queasy, unsafe. 
And we don't like to feel unsafe. And we don't let ourselves feel unsafe very often, a, a dis-ease. Instead, because dis-ease is, is, um, is not so easy to bear, instead we react with dislike because it's, there's an unpleasantness. We're, down to, we're back to our experience of Vedana, unpleasant Vedana. As, our, as we're beginning to see through the illusion that I am my body. The closer we get, the more we see. This is not me. This is not mine. This I am not. We see that the body and its functions are happening selflessly. All by themselves. Arising and vanishing. You can't tell your body not to get old. Jack Cornfield calls this rent-a-body. <laughs> so we see that it's, in a more macro way, it's aging, but we see in an underlying way, it's moving. And, and that's a little unsettling. And there are so many elements of what we, what we hook our identity to that are, uh, that are also very unstable. So consequently, we walk around um, in a state of, to a certain degree, the whole apparatus of our identity is one of insecurity. It's, a, it's like quicksand. As one teacher or one person put it, this woman named Jocelyn King, she says, I don't understand why people prefer the quicksand of somebodyness rather than the firm ground of emptiness. As soon as we become somebody, we become insecure. It's a, it's a mark of an identity. So just as a way to get used to a little bit more the selflessness of our body, to begin to loosen the, that grasp and that identity that we have with our body, we meditate. We see, we begin to get used to the fact that it's always changing. It's selfless. It's doing itself. And we, our identity gets, just, we're just not as caught up in it. Sometimes we need a little bit more information from science to help us out. Here's a little list of statistics that, for your enjoyment. Humans spend a third of their lives sleeping. Every person has a unique, th- unique tongue print. There's enough iron in the human body to make one small nail. A cough releases an explosive charge of air that moves up to 60 miles per hour. Sneezes can travel up to 100 miles per hour. It takes 17 muscles to smile and 43 to frown takes approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. (laughs) Most people blink about 25 times a minute, 20,000 times a day. The average person speaks about 31,500 words per day. Each breath we inhale, billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells, etc. Average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and joined the DNA from the genes of the cells, it would fit 
in an ice cube, the string would stretch 80 billion miles. That is from the earth to the sun and back again 400 times. The body gives birth to 100 billion red cells every day. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour, about 1.5 pounds a year. By age 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. (laughs) Most dust particles in your home are made from dead skin. The body makes new stomach lining every five days, makes new liver every six weeks, replaces new head hair every two to five years, replaces new eyebrows that consist of 450 hairs every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month, replaces a new skeleton every seven years. 50,000 cells in your body will die and be replaced as new cells, with new cells, all while you listen to this sentence. I think that's enough. (laughs) This was from Jane Hirschfield. They have discovered, this is called my proteins. They have discovered, they say, the protein of itch, not triadic polypeptide B and that it travels its own distinct pathway inside my spine, as do pain, pleasure, and heat. A body, it seems, is a highway of a cloverleaf crossing, well-built, well-traversed, some of me going north, some going south. Ninety percent of my cells, they've discovered, are not my own person. They are other beings inside me, as 96% of my life is not my life. Yet I, they say, am they, my bacteria and yeasts, my mother and father, grandparents and lovers, my drivers talking on cell phones, my subways and bridges, my thieves, my police who chase myself night and day, my proteins, apparently also me, fold the shirts. I find in this crowded metropolis a quiet corner where I build of not-me Lego blocks a bench, Pigeons, a sandwich of rye bread, mustard, and cheese. It is me and it is not the hunger that makes the sandwich good. It is not me then is, it is not me then is the sandwich, a mystery neither of us can fold, unfold, or consume. So when we left the Buddha sitting under the Bodhi tree, Part of his letting go was seeing the illusion that I am the body. Seeing through the self-illusion as it represents itself in the body. And he felt more of the security of awareness. As he sat there and he noticed the endless changes of the body, everything he noticed made his mind uh, brighter. That's why all this continuity of noticing has you all look so much brighter. Why you can stay that way and even bloom. Until the point when he was sitting there that his, his mind was literally shining in its clarity. Everything was reflected more clearly. 
And not only did he see the selflessness of the, the body, that this is not me, this is not mine, but then he moved on to the, to the moods. That, of course, if my body is not me, but at least my moods. And he saw the moods appearing and disappearing, completely unbidden, dependent on thoughts, dependent on, on sense, different sense experiences, all kinds of triggers happening all by itself. He said, this is not me, this is not mine, this I am not. And it, then it became clear as he paid attention to the to the thoughts flowing through his mind that a thought is, as I was talking about this morning, a thought is like a cloud passing through an empty sky, like a footprint of a bird in emptiness, just nothing there. And to the degree that our identity, our sense of ourselves, is dependent on thoughts. Again, a tremendous source of insecurity. Because a lot of those thoughts that are attempting in, in an unreliable way to define me, a lot of those thoughts are, I'm not okay. Now, can anybody find the evidence right now for not being okay? Anybody in this room, if you don't consult your memory? You're with the friend now. And you're not definable by a thought. And that's why you feel so much stronger, more stable. Because you're now beginning to see the difference between Sakaya Ditti, the story of yourself, and your immediate and direct experience, yourself as you are. And this difference is, um, is a huge, to me, it's a huge liberation. To see how those moments of insecurity, let's say you feel your body, it's shaky and it's unpleasant, or you feel a mood and it's unpleasant. It pre- unpleasantness, when we experience it, unpleasantness produces a charge. It happens naturally. You didn't do it, it's not your fault. My friend Wes says, you're not your fault. <laughs> just, these are just conditions. But the, the unpleasant feeling arises. Body is insecure, shaky. Maybe that's not who I am. I don't want to feel that. So that unpleasantness is followed by not liking. And that produces a little tension. And not liking, if I don't notice that, if I'm, if I'm mindful of not liking, it just shows itself as another changing experience, another thing to be known. Not liking's not a problem. Unpleasant's not a problem. Unpleasant smells, unpleasant taste, unpleasant feeling of insecurity. Not a problem if I notice both its unpleasantness and I notice that I don't like it. Notice the aversion to it. 
But if that aversion goes unnoticed, not liking goes unnoticed, it produces even more tension. And when tension increases in our bodies and in our minds, what happens next? We love ourselves, don't we? We want to feel better. What do we do? We go shopping. We eat something. We get up from our cushion. Go have some tea. Or, in most cases in our life, we become, we enter into virtual reality. We become lost in thought. That pressure of aversion, dislike, produces a kind of discharge and we start having lots of thoughts about our situation, about ourselves. And then in the case on retreat, it ends up being not just about ourselves, but about the retreat and about everyone else. Now, the, now if it's something that bugs you on the retreat, how many of you have heard of the VV? The VV is called Vipassana Vendetta. <laughs> where somebody you see on the retreat triggers an unpleasant feeling, you don't like something they do. It's, it's because our identity has gotten hooked, hooked has gotten, had, has formed around views and opinions. That's one of the ways that identity forms. Views and opinions, rites and rituals, how you're supposed to do things. What a proper meditator is supposed to be like. What someone's supposed to be like as they go through the, the lunch line. How much food they should take. How, how, how much that they should um, be quiet as they come in the room. Or sit down. Isn't it interesting how everything everybody else does becomes all about me? <laughs> this is how in our thoughts we form an identity. The one who's experiencing uh, disease and the, the vendetta is when somebody bugs you and your mind just goes off. And bef- within minutes, that person has become the reason for all your suffering. <laughs> something that's not showing up on the retreat, some, something that they're not saying up in the front triggers an aversion fear or something and then before you know it it's it's um our mind is just proliferating and in that proliferation we have literally incarnated as the one who is caught in a in a drama the one who has come from the past who's having to pass through this obstacle in the present who's hopefully going to get to the future with some kind of relief and as we've been referring to over the course of retreat, nothing happened. Nothing happened except this, this drama that played through our minds. This drama, this incarnation that we enter into in our thoughts is Sakaya Ditti. That's a self-view. Forming a sense of identity around our, uh, what we like and what we dislike. Forming an identity around our views and our opinions forming identities around what we, yeah, I already said that, what we want to happen. As the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, he saw that 
story of me, that thought of myself is not myself. As our teacher Manindra used to say, a thought of your mother is not your mother. Same with yourself. A thought of yourself is not yourself. That character who's playing out that drama does not exist. It's an imaginary you. So it's a, it's a wonderful possibility for us to be able to make that shift from being little carried along by that view of self to simply resting in that aware presence, knowing that a thought of myself is not myself. It's just a thought, story. Or to know that aversion is like this, hating is like this, my vendetta, the vendetta is like this. Then the other side is the Vipassana romance, the VR. Somebody triggers pleasant feeling and produces a charge, liking, and then that hardens into uh, wanting, and then wanting creates even more pressure. Body tightens, and out comes this waterfall of fantasy. Literally within minutes, mating, dating, marriage, divorce, travel... so intense when these uh, incarnations occur. We're literally carried along in this kind of virtual dream world of, of what will make me happy. That's why Rumi in one of his poems says, failure <laughs> is the key to the, to the, the world within to freedom, to the divine. Your prayer should be break the legs of what I want to happen. Humiliate my desire. Eat me like candy. It's spring. And finally I have no... No, I forgot what the last line is. But I ha- finally I have no something or other. So the Buddha saw this ever-changing flow of identity views, little mini-incarnations. And as his mind relaxed and opened, he saw that every time you were born into one of these little dreamscapes, you have to wander a long time. You're carried along. This is a, you, you end up being in a state of, of uh, disarray. One, because you've left, you've lost contact with reality. You've lost contact with the friend. I want to talk about another way that we incarnate in, our, in this, how we, another way that we get lost in in Sakaya Ditti, in, in the self-view. But first I want to share with you the song that the Buddha shared after his awakening as his mind relaxed and opened to the unconditioned, the, to the deathless, to his place in the family of things. As he eased himself into the boundless right where it touched him, as he as one of my teachers said when he said, marry the one who won't divorce you, as he married the one who, who wouldn't divorce him, his, his natural state, his awareness, he let out a song. And the song said, 
through many births in the wandering on, I ran, seeking not finding the maker of that house. Birth in that house is dukkha. Birth again and again is dukkha. O house builder, uh, you shall not build another house again. Your rafters have been broken. I've seen you. In other words, Mara, I've seen you. You can't fool me anymore. Your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole destroyed. This house building. It says, my mind has gone to the unconditioned. To cravings, cessation, it has come. No longer pulled into that state of suspended happiness. Endlessly waiting for a future that never arrives. Oh, house builder, you've been seen. You shall not build a house again. Dukkha is birth again and again. Your rafters are broken. Your ridgepole destroyed. My mind gone to the unconditioned. So it's a beautiful thing when our mind goes to the unconditioned. As you sensed after your last thought had ceased... And before the next one comes, there's a kind of vivid presence that we all share here. Natural, our natural state is just so awake and aware. Uncreated. Unconditioned. You just are aware. But we don't stay there, if we're honest with ourselves. We don't stay there very long. A thought arises. Even though you may have felt for a moment, I'm the Buddha. Buddha just means awake. But then the thought comes, I'm not the Buddha. I'm a person. A thought of being a person is not a person. It's a thought. But that thought arises. And if that thought is noticed, as just a thought of of a person, it just becomes a natural expression, another sense experience to be known in our, in our meditation, another thought. But if that thought goes unnoticed, what happens? If that thought goes unnoticed, as one teacher, Dujam Rinpoche, put it, that thought spreads out into ordinary thinking. It causes a chain of events, a chain of thoughts. And he called that the chain of delusion. Because again, we are born into this imaginary me who's usually something's not quite right. That's, that's one of the stories. Or the imaginary me that's playing through our mind has some reference to our life situation, our history, our, as I said earlier, our gender, our sexual orientation, our privilege, whatever it is, we have a thought of, of whatever our, our self-identity is associated with. And each of you will have your own version of that playing through your mind. So it's individual. But whether it's individual and it reflects your history and your life, 
And as beautiful and as unique as each one of the stories is that plays through our mind and the fact that those stories allow us to talk to one another and tell each other stories, tell each other our stories, to feel the impact of, of what, how we have been formed, that story is still a limited view of who and what you are. It's still a second-hand version of the immediate and real you that cannot, on present evidence, be captured in thoughts. And this is this sense of you, which is only vast, wondrous, unnameable, indescribable, free, is missed while we're busy limiting our identity to our historical self or our life situation. An example of this, some of you have heard me talk about this before, but I had the good fortune of visiting a teacher in India who had a, a, a knack for, for dissecting or seeing wherever you built your identity that, wasn't real, that was really a house of cards, that was really like quicksand. He had a knack for seeing where you fall into delusion. So when I went to see him, I got, um, on my way to see him, I ate something that wasn't so good. And I got extremely ill. And I was, I know there were a few people on this retreat that got ill. I got the same kind of ill that was a few people had on the retreat. I was vomiting. I was, you know, every, everything was, was coming out of every every direction. And I was also feverish and weak and I was really sick. And we human beings are vulnerable in that way. We get sick. And so I was sick. And I stayed home for a few days and then finally I felt well enough to go to see this teacher who I'd traveled halfway around the world to see. Become highly recommended. His name is H.W.L. Punja. And I had already had one conversation with him that kind of blew my mind. But this day, I kind of meekly dragged my body to along the Ganges River, crossed a bridge, made my way to his little house that he was living in. And everything was painful. I was so uncomfortable could not have been more uncomfortable. I was so sick. But I was well enough to go see him. I bought some bananas at the corner, little stand right near his house. And then as I always remember when I start to tell this story, these monkeys jumped out of the tree and took my bananas. And (laughs) it was one of those times where I thought I was having real insight into, into dukkha, things that are so hard to bear about life. 
So I finally made my way uncomfortably to his house and climbed these several flights of stairs until I found him in this beautifully hand-washed, blue-walled room and this joyous being looking at me. And he looked at me very intently and he, he had known that I was sick and he had even sent me a big chunk of cheese to eat, and, which I never figured out why. But, <laughs> but he, he, he greeted me very friendly and he said, how are, you, how are you feeling? And I said to him, I'm feeling much better, but I'm still sick. And he looked at me and he said, where is sick? And I couldn't find it. And in a flash, I realized that I had not just experienced symptoms, just the immediacy of my experience, but I had incarnated in the story of being sick. And I was full, very busy being sick, identified with being sick. And without that identity... the natural vitality of being conscious, being in touch with reality just came flooding forth. And I still had symptoms, but I was no longer sick, no longer busy being sick. So it's very subtle ways that one thought, based on some very present experience, a thought about our life, a thought about our, our, what we care about, can lead to a kind of stifling identity view that um, deprives us of our, of our true grandeur. The true sense of immediacy. And I would never want to de- deny my symptoms. Symptoms are symptoms. But the identity was extra. And we can begin to see that in our own lives, how the identity view imprisons us uh, as much as it is so, such an organic expression of everything that's happened in our life. So the last thing I want to talk about is the way that we um, enter into Sakaya Ditti, into the personality view into the self-view. Remember, a view of self is not self. It's just a view. It appears and disappears. One of the ways, and perhaps one of the most insidious ways, that we incarnate in our thoughts about ourself is in the form of what we talked about this morning. Somebody's, your comment this morning is in the form of some kind of pride. It's a pride, I'm doing well. Or I am, uh, the way the Buddha talked about it, he talked about it as mana or conceit. And he talked about mana in three ways, or conceit. He talked about it as the, um, primarily as the comparing mind. Comparing to some ideal that we have. uh, Comparing to another and in terms of comparison, there are basically three kinds of mana, three kinds of conceit, three kinds of pride that we tend to get carried away by. 
we enter into that identity of an imaginary person who's comparable. And the three kinds of comparison are what he called atimana, which is he called the superiority view, where I'm better than others, so that's in relationship to others. I'm better than others, so that's, and often what comes with that is a kind of inflated feeling. And then amana, which is I'm less than others. And then the third one is uh, called just mana, which means I'm, and that's called the equality view. I'm equal to others. But in all three cases, it is the mind entering into an identity where, where our sense of identity is based on some kind of measurement. Now, is anybody here on present evidence measurable? Are you measurable right now? We can see in real time that this is just an idea. It's a story. It can never capture you. Yet we can literally live in the story of inflation, deflation, measuring. And our mind will go to, because it, it is also has no ground. There's no security in it. Because sometimes you are a winner, sometimes you're a loser. As we talked about the, the worldly wins, I think, on the first night. Sometimes there's praise, sometimes there's blame, fame, shame. So the, our, any idea of ourselves that's based on a comparison uh, is, a, is, a, um, is like quicksand. And we don't like to feel that. And that, that becomes the cause, that unpleasantness becomes the cause of a lot of our distractedness. And out of our love for ourselves, we often just keep trying harder to be better. Get caught in the flywheel of good, of better, of best, and measuring mind. The way Rumi put this, he says, live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here. You have eyes that see from that nowhere and eyes that judge distances. How high, how low. You own two shops and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller, this way, checkmate, this way, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore, where you're the free swimming fish. So you're with the friend now. So you know what it's like for moments to be a free swimming fish. You can trust it, merge with it. It's your own home. And you don't have to travel any distance to find it. You simply have to know the difference between your immediate and direct experience and these uh, measuring views that play through your mind. As James J. Audubon put it, if there's a difference between the bird And what the field guidebook says, believe the bird. (laughs) Whenever I talk about the comparing mind, I I have to include the best passage that I've ever read on the lengths that people go to 
to secure the, the unsecurable sense of self around comparisons. It's just not possible to find any reliable relief in it. This is an example uh, from 2002. In June of 2002, after the British musical group The Planets introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album, representatives of the estate of the composer John Cage, who once wrote 4 minutes 33 seconds, which is the name of a tune, which is 273 seconds of silence. The representatives of the state of John Cage, who wrote this piece, threatened to sue the group, the Planets, for ripping Cage off, (laughs) but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273... which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought it had been pilfered. <laughs> Said Mike Bat of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. <laughs> Just a few more of the comparing mind, just because we all do this, and this is a, a torment for, for everyone, but... This is from the Hasidic tradition. One day a rabbi in a frenzy of religious passion rushed in before the ark, fell to his knees and started beating his breast, crying, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And the cantor of the synagogue, impressed by the example of spiritual humility, joins the rabbi on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. And then the Seamus, the custodian, watching from the corner, couldn't re- resist him, couldn't restrain himself either. He joined the other two on his knees, calling out, I'm nobody, I'm nobody. At which point the rabbi, nudging the cantor with his elbow, pointed at the custodian and said, look who thinks he's nobody. <laughs> so that's subtle. <laughs> so since we're out of time, uh, I thought I would just end with a few well maybe I'll just end with a very simple poem from Derek Walcott his poem entitled Love After Love so the time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror. And each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who is yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. To the stranger who has loved you all your life. Whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelves. The photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Let's just feast on our life.
To study the Buddha Dharma is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be awakened by all things. Thank you all for your attention. So enjoy your, the feast of your life for the next 20 minutes of walking and then we'll chant and please be mindful. Oh yes, and Erin has something she would like to share with you before we go for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.